But turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We start our new series, No Other Gospel, Faith Alone. Galatians, there's Bibles in the back. You'll need a Bible. We're going to do an introduction. You'll need Bibles. There's some in the back in the back wall. Grab a Bible. Just get up and grab one, no problem. Um, We're going to be studying this book of Galatians over the next four months together. Very, very important New Testament epistle. Uh, The importance of getting this book right, interpreting and applying this book accurately cannot be overstated. Like the poor man who knocked on the front door of a suburban home and asking for money and the owner said, I'm not giving you any money, but you can work for it. The guy said, sure, I'll do that. He said, then what I want you to do is go paint my porch. Everything you need is in the back. Two hours later, the man came back and said, it's done. The rich suburban owner said, it's done. You finished in two hours? I said, yeah, I put two, paint, two coats of paint on it as well. And by the way, it's not a Porsche. It's a Mercedes, just so you know. <laughs> so it's important that you get the message of Galatians right. Why? Because the book of Galatians is all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It was vital to the church of Galatia, as vital for us today. It was vital, as we'll look at a little bit today, for the Reformers in the 1500s, rediscovered the gospel. Very, very important. So we've got to hold on to your seats and, and put your thinking caps on because I, my hope is that when we go through this book, this book will reveal to us our hearts and minds. And if we get it right, if, if we get to interpret and apply this book correctly, It'll it'll fuel our love for God and push us toward a deeper understanding of what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus, the gospel. Dr. Tim Keller rightly said, the gospel is not just the ABC, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. We are not justified by the gospel, then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier, end quote. And Paul will remind the church that if you get the gospel wrong, there is condemnation, there is damnation. But if you get it right... There is love, there is joy, there is deliverance from evil, there is freedom, there is power, Holy Spirit power, there is encouragement for our souls. Chapter 1, verse 6, verse 8. Don't take anybody else's word, whether an angel from heaven, if they preach a contrary gospel to which I preach, let him be accursed. He says it twice, verse 8 and verse 9. Nine, that's how important the gospel is. And the key verse of this beautiful, magnificent, called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, is this verse, Galatians chapter 2. Mark it in your Bibles, write it down, Galatians chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We'll talk about that. So if you've never been through a book of the Bible, you're new here. We do it one verse at a time. It's our regular diet here at King's Chapel. Expository preaching is not just going through books of the Bible verse by verse. Because you could do that and take out verse and run it 
topically. Expository preaching is, is, is taking from the text, taking from the text and drawing out the meaning from act, the actual text. It's very important that we understand its historical, grammatical, and cultural distinction, distinctions in order to get at what God was saying to the original author, to the original recipient, then and only then can we draw modern-day application. So we get the meaning, from the, the meaning of the text from the text, the outline from the text. And that's what we like to do here. We, we try to get it right and then bring application. So we're going to look at the historical background today. We're going to spend time, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the introduction of the book of Galatians in order to understand the content and the context of the book. Then we'll launch into a more of a depth study starting next week. It's imperative that we understand the original intent. So I say this every time. If you don't like history and you have no desire for context, go to sleep. When it's over, somebody will wake up. For the rest of us, though, who love context and understand it's important, it's important to really really give, bring insight into this book. That's what we're going to do today. We're only going to cover two verses, okay? Galatians chapter 1, Bill's laughing, I hear him. Two verses. Galatians chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the church's of Galatia. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. So, we'll look at the place, we'll look at the person, the person who wrote the book, and then we'll look at the purpose of the book, very important. Okay, the place, the person, and the purpose. So let's look at the place. Notice in the epistle that it was not written to the church of Galatia. In many of, in all the other books that Paul writes to the church, he writes to the church of Rome or to the church of Philippi or to the church of Corinth, Corinth, a particular place in a particular location to a single church. It's not that those churches didn't circulate his letters. They did. But here, Paul is writing to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Okay, I want you to notice that. So the question becomes, who were they? where were they? Where were these churches in which Paul is talking about? So the old theory is, or, or the older theory is, that Paul was writing to the region of Galatia, to the northern region of Galatia, where what the people call the Celts or the Gauls, meaning warriors who lived in northern Asia Minor. In 278, 279 BC, after invading Greece and Macedonia, the Gauls left their home in southern Europe and crossed over to Asia Minor. And at 232, they declared the land of Galatia their home as their state. But then in 25 BC, this is all BC, by the way, in 25 BC, 25, 28 years before Christ was born, the Romans built, the Romans made it their own province, and the Romans built roadways along the southern district. Okay, along the southern districts. I do have. Um, let me see what I have here. Okay, so let me just, let me see if you can see this. I do have the clicker. Okay. So, does this work? No, it's not working. Oh, let me take this out. Okay. So, if you can see Syria, here is Asia. Okay. Oh, Italy's on this side. You can't really see it. 
okay? And here's Paul's missionary journey. Here's Galatia right there. And here's the southern cities. Lystra, you can see all them in here. Pisidia, uh, Antioch, here's Galatia. And this is Paul's missionary journey this way and then through these cities. So Paul went through those cities. Here's a, another picture I want to show you. So here's Italy, here's Greece, Crete, here's Jerusalem, Judea, Arabia, Egypt. Okay, I'm just pointing it out to you. Here's uh, Phrygia, which is in Galatia, and here's all the cities that Paul went through in his first missionary journey, okay? So that, that's, and, and, and some people say it's in Galatia. See, Galatia is the northern part, and down here by the Mediterranean Sea is the southern part of Galatia, all known as Galatia, okay? And during Paul's first missionary journey, Paul was sent out by Barnabas, and uh, Paul was sent out uh, by the Antioch church. Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journeys, and they went through southern Galatia. So the argument, or the, or the thinking is, was it the southern region which Paul went through in his first missionary journey, or in chapter 16, he talks about a second missionary journey, which appears to be more of the northern region, okay? I, I really believe in the southern idea of the Galatia for, for several reasons. I think the Roman roads were there. Paul could have made it easily along the southern region of Galatia. He preached in the first, uh, uh, his missionary journey to all the cities. We have that for sure. And nowhere does it really say he went into the region preaching the gospel. It just says in, in uh, Acts chapter 16, he went through the region of Galatia. We're not really sure. I think it's in, in the southern region. During Paul's first missionary journey, these churches were planted and, on, and now he is writing to them, okay? He's writing to them. And, I, and, I, and lastly, the Judaizers, which we'll, we'll, we'll come to them in a moment, the Judaizers were mostly settled in the southern region of Galatia. Now, that may not mean anything to the content of the book, whether Paul was writing to the northern region or to the southern region, to the churches he planted along that southern region in his first missionary journey. It may not matter to the content, but it matters to the date in which the letter was written. That's why I want to get there. So, if Paul is writing to the southern region, which I believe he is, the letter was written around 48 or 49 AD, which means it was the very first letter Paul had wrote. 48, 49 AD. If it was to the northern region and it was later on, maybe even after Ephesians, uh, somewhere around 55, 58, depends on your commentaries, A.D. It was not his first letter that he was written, okay? What's interesting about this is Paul, nowhere in his letter to the Galatia, to the Galatian churches, the multiple churches, I think, in the southern region, uh, does he talk about what's called the Jerusalem Council, okay, in Acts chapter 15? It would seem odd that Paul wouldn't mention the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and let me tell you why. If you're not familiar with Acts chapter 15, it it was very, very important. This council that took place in Acts chapter 15, it was very important and very strategic in the advancement of the gospel during that time, okay? Acts is a historical book detailing the, the continued work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit's empowering of the disciples to proclaim the gospel and live on mission, and as they did, as the gospel went out um, after Pentecost, two worlds collided, the Jewish people and the Gentile people, creating all kinds of ethnical problems, created to uh, things such as 
table fellowship, and the keeping of the Mosaic law. And in Acts chapter 15, all the Jewish apostles and the elders gathered together and said, look, the Gentiles are coming to faith, the Jews and the law are coming to faith, and we have problems. We have problems with table fellowship, we have problems with the Mosaic law. What are we to do about this? And they all gathered together in Acts chapter 15 and wrote a letter to the Gentile churches on what should happen. I don't want to get into it now, I don't have time. Now track with me. What Paul's going to deal with in the book of Galatia, we'll look at in a second, has to do with two worlds colliding together, Jewish and Gentile. It may not matter to you today, but it mattered a lot to them back then. And it would be odd, as I said, that he didn't mention the letter at all. Now I realize that argument's uh, not a strong argument because it's just from absence, but being that Paul preached the gospel and and clearly in Acts 13 and 14, in the cities of the southern region, and and, and the gospel is preached, people came to faith, a church was formed, which reminds us, our job is to make disciples, it's Jesus' job to build a church. We don't build churches, Jesus does. We go and make disciples, and that's what he did in the southern region. People came to faith, churches were birthed, and, and, and Paul had done that, all that work in his first missionary journey, and that's why as we open up this letter, we're gonna see what you have is a very not happy apostle. <laughs> he's not happy. He, he's actually angry. Galatians has a certain tone of anger, holy anger in it, written to the southern regions in which Paul had planted, by the power and work of Jesus, churches. Okay, so let's look at the person uh, of the apostle Paul. Look at with me. The greeting, Paul, an apostle. Okay, it begins in the usual way of antiquity. Now, when they used to write letters back then, they would put down who the sender and the writer is, the writer first. Like when we write a letter, what do we do? We write the letter, dear so-and-so, and then we put our name at the bottom. Well, not in antiquity. They would put their name up front along with a, uh, um, a greeting, um, who they are, look at verse uh, 2 with me. So it's Paul, I'm reading to the church of Galatia, and then the greeting, grace to you and peace to you, okay? Usually Paul then after the great, just turn with me, to just turn if you can to Ephesians. This is Paul's regular, look, look at Ephesians 1, an apostle, that's Paul, he starts off with his name, to the saints, in Ephesus, they, Ephesians, right? Two, grace to you, greeting. And then he gets in verse three and has this wonderful blessing. Blessed be the Father. Verse 15, I'm writing these things to you. Look at verse 15, because I've heard of your faith uh, toward all the saints. I I, I do not cease to give you thanks. And he goes into this wonderful, like you guys are awesome. Like God is doing great things among you. Not in Galatia, he doesn't. (laughs) Verse six, I am astonished. Galatians 1, 6 that you are so quickly deserting him. Paul's not happy. Paul has a holy indignation, a godly anger and frustration. Paul has been made aware that a false gospel had been introduced into these young churches of southern Galatians, and there is holy indignation. If we, as I said earlier, or an angel... Preach anything other than the gospel we preach. Let him be damned. He says it twice. 
Did you know that there's sarcasm in the Bible? I'm not giving you permission to use sarcasm. I'm just saying. There's sarcasm. Paul tells, Paul tells those who think that circumcision, and we're going to talk about that, that circumcision is necessary to become a child of God, that they should go ahead and cut it off. Did he just say that? It's in the Bible. There's going to be a whole message upon emasculate yourself. Holy indignation. The apostles were not just given the message of the gospel. The apostles were given the authority to defend the gospel. He's defending the gospel. Here's holy indignation about what was going on in that church. Now, before the apostle jumps into what the problem is, look what he does. He wants to set the record straight, particularly about his authority, his apostolic authority in verse 1. Reformers would have called this the formal principle. It is the formal meaning it's the authority in which the apostles had, not only what they had, but on the message in which they preached. That's the formal principle. While the other principle is the material principle, which we'll get into chapter 3, talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But, but Paul jumps right into the reality that, hey, there's a, I have authority here. I have authority here. Paul, an apostle, not from men, from men, apo means original source. His apostleship did not come from man. It did not come from men as its ultimate source. It's not from man, nor through man. Important, dia, the instrument, the assistance in the hands of someone who's performing a certain act. And Paul is saying, uh, Paul not only denies that he had made an apostle not by men, but he also says it's not through man. Very strong language. I want you to see that. He doesn't usually come out this strong. And Paul is making it very clear. It is not by man. It is not through man. It is through Jesus Christ and God the Father. In other words, I am an apostle. I did not receive my apostolic authority from man, not through man, not by man. But I got it directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he doesn't say through Jesus Christ and through the Father. He combines them together and he's saying, listen. He's the source, he's the authority, he's the agency. There is no higher calling, there is no higher authority. I received it directly from Jesus and God the Father. He's letting him know right up front that what he preached and what he is preaching and this letter in which he is writing has all the weight and authority of God himself, just like all the other apostles. Now, do you know the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Right, So all the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. Right, He chose 12. Right, and, and I think that's important that we understand the difference between the two. So a disciple is simply a learner. Right? A simply a learner. Someone who listens and follows a teaching of a rabbi or some sort of uh, someone who's being, you know, discipling. He learns. He not only listens, but he follows and he does what his master shows him. Every child of God is the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not everybody's an apostle. The word apostle, apostolos in the Greek, apo meaning from, stelos meaning to send. It, an apostle is someone who is sent, not just, just sent, but sent in the authority of the one who is sending them, like an ambassador or, or someone who is a power of attorney. And the apostles were appointed and given 
authority and credential for the office of apostle. They were chosen and called and commissioned as apostles of Christ, who, by the way, is the chief apostle, Hebrews 3.1. He gave them authority to teach on his behalf. So, so obviously, there were some critics in Galatia, in, in, the, in the southern cities there. there. There were some critics there that were saying, you know what? Paul was not one of the original 12. There he is, a Johnny-come-lately. He's only a second-rated apostle, and his message is second-rated. His gospel has no real backbone. Why listen to him? He's not one of the 12. And they probably actually looked down on him as a sellout. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? No. If I was trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, I'm not preaching this gospel, getting beat up, dragged out of cities, right, to please anyone. And here's something important. Paul was not simply defending himself, and I don't even think he was even caring about himself. What Paul was defending was his apostolic office. His apostolic office. They were a unique men called by the great apostle Jesus. Now, just so you know, and just a little more background, that's what we're going to do today. When Jesus called the 12 apostles, it's not like no one ever heard of apostles before, just so you know. There was a pow- the, the most powerful group of men in all of Israel was known as the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 men. And they ruled Israel, right? The whole life was centered around their worship and the law and the synagogue and the temple. And they had Shaliah in the Aramaic. They had their own apostles. And if there was trouble within the region, they would make a decision and send someone to whatever, wherever the problem was with the authority that they had. Here's our decision. You go and tell them. And he would go as an ambassador, as one with the authority, like an apostle, with that same authority. And here Jesus doing the same thing. He called 12 together and saying, You are my sent ones. You bear my authority. You have the power that I'm going to give you in the teaching I have. You're my official representatives. There's no such thing, unless you're 2,000 years old and you're in this room, there's no such thing as a capital A apostle today. So if someone says they are, one word, run. Sometimes we use the word apostle small a, as a church planter, someone who's sent, because that's what the word means, to send. I'd rather not use the word at all to confuse people. No uppercase A apostle. Everyone in Jesus' day understood that he called those 12 to take on an official office that they would have to literally be with Jesus, witness his life and ministry and resurrection from the grave. In fact, when Judas killed himself and after Jesus rose from the dead, what did they do? They gathered everybody together and said, we need to replace Judas. Acts chapter 1. Who's going to replace him? A man who's been with us, a man who went in and out and saw the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with his baptism, and he must have been a witness of the resurrection. Chapter 1, verse 21 in Acts and 22. So maybe, maybe the Jewish, the, the, maybe, maybe the people, the critics, the, the problem people in Galatia were saying, you know what, you're not one of the original 12. I don't know. Maybe the criteria, they said, you know what, were you really commissioned? Although there's no apostolic succession, make no mistake about this, the New Testament is clear. God the Father 
God himself chose Paul to be an apostle. He was appointed to his office, it says, through Jesus Christ and God who raised him from the dead. Paul the apostle came face to face with the risen Lord on the Damascus road. If you read Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, it makes it very clear that he was commissioned as an apostle with the authority given to him. Maybe it wasn't the same way as the other guys, but he had that authority. He verified it in 1 Corinthians 9. He had signs of miracles, which is performed by apostles. The apostle Paul, he was making it very clear, has all apostolic authority as the other 12. And he's going to get into it in all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 to make that point. Okay? And obviously, they're like, you know what? Who's this guy? He ain't got no authority. He's not, he's not legitimate. Don't believe his message. W- one last thing I want to talk about, I think it's very important as we, as we look at this. The apostles in the New Testament, capital A, okay? The apostles in the New Testament, capital A, were given divine revelation. They were, they were given authority, which now we call the word of God, okay? Nobody else has that. Turn one book to Ephesians again, chapter two, verse 19. In the context of Jews and Gentiles becoming one body in Christ, in that context, chapter two, verse 19, in the gospel context of Jew and Gentile being one body in Christ, Ephesians two nineteen says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having what? Been built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. They were the first leaders of the church. They spoke with God's authority like the prophets of the Old Testament. Keep your Bible open in Ephesians. Look at verse uh, chapter 3. When you read this, he says, verse 5, Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul writing this letter, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it now has been revealed to who? His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, all right? It's been revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through what? The gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which has given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of the saints, was, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul, along with the other apostles, laid the foundation. The foundation's already laid. There's no new Bible. No matter what tablets were found, no matter who came down off the mountain later on, no matter what cults have started since, be it Jehovah Witness, be it, be it the Mormon Church, who have these revelations, they are the foundation. The foundation has been laid. It's not a human message. It is a divine revelation of God. They are receivers and, and the direct revelation they received of the unfolding mysteries of Christ. It's called the New Testament. Be very weary on those who say, yeah, you got your Bible, but you need this. You got your Bible, but this came to us later. Really? Foundation's already laid. So Paul is not only arguing 
for his apostolic authority, I think it's important to recognize that the apostolic authority has to do with writing the New Testament, has to do with preaching the good news, has to do with getting the gospel right. And that's what Paul is trying to do. So let's get to the purpose. After Paul preached the gospel to the Galatians in the first journey, this first, Christian, first missionary journey, Christian Jews, historically known as the Judaizers, basically came in and said, listen, in order to be a Christian, this is after Paul left, in order to be a Christian, you must adhere to the law of Moses. In particular, you must be circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant, Genesis 17. But I don't think that's the only problem. I think Paul attacks the whole problem Uh, attacks the problem of trying to live out the whole law. Not just circumcision. We're going to look at that in detail. But the argument in in this book is that Paul is saying, if if, in chapter 5, in fact, he says this in chapter 5, he says, if if you think circumcision is going to help you be saved or that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, then you know what? You're obligated to keep every single jot and tittle of the law. In other words, if you want to become a child of God, these Judaizers were saying, you want to be part of the covenant family of God, you want to be saved from God's wrath through the forgiveness of your sins, adhere to the Mosaic law. So let's define some terms. I want to define some terms. We'll do that, and then we'll close. Number one, very important, what is the gospel, right? The book is about the gospel. What is the gospel? Next, what is justification? It's huge in this book. Justification, it's all about being justified. Then we're going to look at what is legalism. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were adding law upon gospel. So what does it mean to be a legalist? And what does it mean to be what is called antinomianism? What does it mean to, to be an antinomian? In other words, against the law. So those are the three things, four things we're going to look at really quickly, okay? Number one, very important. Listen up. What is the gospel? Paul kind of alludes to it in chapters uh, one here, one through five, right? Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. Verse 1, he was raised from the dead. He gave himself for our sin. He was raised from the dead. And what do we get? Look, verse 3, grace and peace from God the Father. Who gets the glory? Verse 5, to him be the glory forever and ever and amen. Here's the gospel. Paul would say to to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, "This this is first importance. Get this right. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried in the grave. He was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The gospel is is the good news. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. The Bible opens up with humanity created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God, in fellowship with his with their creator and yet sin entered the world and now because of sin we are all in revolt against God and therefore we are under his just judgment but although God stands over against us in judgment because of our sin he amazingly stands over against us in love because that's the kind of God we serve and the gospel is the good news of what God in love has done Jesus on the cross And in his resurrection, deals with our sin. He reconciles sinful people to a holy God. He bears our sin. He bore the penalty. He turned aside God's judgment, God's wrath, and he forgives us of our sins. And the brokenness of our lives, he restores. The new life that we find in Christ is granted to us 
by sheer grace alone. We therefore are justified before God when we receive this gift of the gospel, when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, turn to Jesus, we confess him as Lord, we bow to him joyfully, and one day it culminates with the return of Jesus, a new heaven, a new home, a home of, of righteousness where neither sin nor the effects can survive, and we enjoy the presence. We enjoy the presence of God forever in the context of resurrection existence. That's the good news. That's the good news. And we entreat everyone, 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. It's an act of love and grace upon you. It's nothing you can do. It's all that Christ has done. That was the message of Christ. That was the message of the apostles. That was the message of the reformers. But by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works no one can boast. That's the gospel. Got to get the gospel right. But you know what else you got to get right? You got to get right justification. Okay? Put your thinking caps on. If you're falling asleep, wake up. Justification is at the heart of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it answers the most important question that has ever and will ever be asked in all of mankind. You know what that question is? How can a man or a woman be made right with God? How can a man or woman be made right with God? To be justified means to be in the right, to be just, to be vindicated. It has legal connotations. A judge would use it in a courtroom declaring someone to be in the rights. Back in the 1500s, German uh, uh, monk, Roman Catholic monk Martin Luther, who by his own testimony hated God as he, was, as he was studying the epistle of Romans and Galatians. And then he learned that being justified, being made right with God is not what he was taught. He was taught that it was infused into you, that you became righteous as you partake of the sacraments as you worked hard and God would then take an unrighteous person and infuse his grace into that person and now that person was made right and he worked so hard but he never attained that righteousness and he said it drove him crazy he hated God for it But then he realized that's not what it means. In fact, one of the things that was very important during the Reformation and during the time of Luther is that Luther was looking at the word justification in the Latin, Latin Vulgate. That's what was used back in the 1500s. I remember growing up as a kid in the Catholic Church, they would have Latin masses, and it was a Latin Vulgate. And in the Latin Vulgate, was trans, translated from the Greek, in the Latin Vulgate, the word for justification, justificare, means justice, Justa and vacare, which means to make righteous. To make righteous. So to be made right, just. And that's what they taught. Work with the sacraments, get baptized, do all those things, and God will make you right. But Luther went back to the original language, the inspired language of the New Testament, which is the Greek. And he found out the word for justification, dikayahu, means not to make someone righteous, but to regard or to count or to declare. Some Bibles have to impute righteousness. A moment of awakening to Luther. Luther realized, as many before him did and many after him will, 
that Paul is not talking about the righteousness or the justice by which God makes you righteous and just, but a righteousness that he gives to us freely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for those who have no righteousness of their own. Luther called it an alien righteousness, somebody else's, and of course, whose righteousness is it? Jesus Christ. So catch this, okay, wake up. Important, justification, one coin, two sides, okay? Justification, one coin, two sides. On the one side, pardon, forgiveness. In the courtroom, the, the cosmic judge, you're forgiven through the substitutionary work of Jesus. Past, present, and future sins, forgiven. On the other side, your righteousness is imputed to you because of Jesus. Not yours, not mine, can't earn it, can't work it. But his perfect obedience to the law has been counted and imputed to you by faith alone. Philippians 3. But whatever I gain, I account for loss for the sake of Christ. Being found in him, how? Paul's talking here. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He's a Pharisee. But that which comes how? What righteousness comes how? Through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on what? Faith. Christ alone lived out the law perfectly. And by faith, Christ will impute his perfect righteousness to us. So when, he, when, when God looks at us, he looks at you and me in Christ. He doesn't see our failures, our sins, our shortcomings. He sees Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfection, so that God delights in us through his son. Justification, very important. Next is legalism, and last, legalism and antinomianism. We gotta talk about this for a little bit. Strictly speaking, legalism, according to Galatian, of the letter to here to the, to the Galatians churches, was adding the law of Moses, as I said, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They wanted Gentiles to become like Jews in order to be good Christians, so they added works of the law on top of faith in Jesus Christ as their bases for their justification, for their salvation. Just what Luther had battled back in the day. You've got to add stuff to it. Legalism, listen, is the belief that we can make ourselves somehow through keeping some standard, we can make ourselves acceptable to God, either by following God's moral standard for our lives or those imposed by man. And by keeping them somehow, some way, to work, to work, to work, we gain merit with God. We'll talk more about that another day. And somehow gaining merit, now we are acceptable to God. But notice in Galatians 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul talks about God who justifies Gentiles by faith, verse chapter 3, verse 8. And then down in verse 10, the contrast are those who are relying upon the law. See, underline that, relying on the law. What, what Paul is saying is, God does it by faith, and yet there are some people in the Galatian church that are preaching Law, and they're relying upon the law for their justification. But God says he justifies us by faith. That's what it means to be um, relying upon the law. And if you keep looking through your Bible, you'll see a couple other places in Galatians where it talks about being under the law. Chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 21. Being under the law. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 518. So it's very important, and we understand as we go through this book, what it means to rely upon the law. What does it mean to be under the law? And as I said, to be under the law, to rely upon the law, is works-based, approval-based, 
approval of God. That God now loves me and accepts me and forgives me based on something that I do. What's the problem with that? You never do enough. It drove Luther crazy. And the truth is, here's the truth. If you have certain moral standards for your life, good for you. If you hit every one of them perfectly, and that, doing that makes you feel loved and valued, accepted, forgiven, blessed, worthwhile, by keeping those standards, what happens? I'll tell you what happens. You become proud and arrogant. Why can't you do that? I do it. Know how I know? That was me. Right? Why can't you do it? Just, just be like me. But if then if you have certain moral standards that you have and they're, they're unreachable and, and, and you try, 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 try and you blow, 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 what happens? If that is what makes you feel loved, you'll feel unloved, unvalued, worthless, not accepted, depressed, dejected. Legalism is a trap. It'll suffocate you to death. Life without joy, life without freedom. The other perversion of the gospel, not only legalism, is antinomianism. Anti meaning against, again, nomos meaning law. The Apostle Paul will deal with it in chapter 5 about freedom. He'll deal with it again in Romans chapter 6. Antinomianism is a belief that God's law has no application whatsoever. Just throw off law, do whatever you want, grace is enough, and go live your life. Antinomianism takes a biblical teaching of freedom to an unbiblical conclusion. There are all kinds of forms of antinomianism in Paul's day and in our day. You may hear the term hypergrace. It's a false teaching about a false understanding of grace. You say, well, how could grace be, grace is hyper. I mean, how much, could, could there, I've talked to people about this. Well, how could grace not be enough? How could grace be, uh, how can you call grace hyper? I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not saying there's not enough grace. I'm saying you're perverting perverting the, the idea of grace. Romans chapter six, should I sin that grace may abound? Well, no. So grace taking it too far, saying that I could just go ahead and sin is not biblical and wrong. So there are all kinds of false teachings. I mean, if you're around anyone that immediately, as soon as you mention the word moral standard or the law of God, and they're like, oh, we're not, we don't want to talk about law. There's your first cue, clue. Galatians is about the gospel and the law and how they apply with one another. And we're going to learn that as we go through this book. You can't, legalism is, is under the law. Antinomianism is throwing the law out. Both places. The problem with that, family, listen, the problem is not the law. The problem is that we misunderstand the character of God who gave the law. We, we misunderstand that. We, we have a distorted view of God because we have a distorted view of the law. The law was given in the context of a covenant, of a gracious, loving covenant of God. He redeemed his people from Egypt. He set them free, and he brings them into a loving relationship with himself. God does. Not because they were wonderful, sweet, loving people that he just said, you guys are great. No, he called them out because he placed his love upon them. He chose them because he's God and he's sovereign. He could do that. They were certainly not perfect. And out of grace, he rescues them. He calls them to himself. Then graciously, he gives them the plan on how to live their life. 
God's law is not this contract and conditions, but an implication of his gracious, merciful covenant he made with us. It reveals the character of the lawgiver. It displays God's character, his sovereignty, his justice, his jealousy, his holiness, his honor, his faithfulness, his providence, his truthfulness, and his love. Paul will say in Romans 7 that the law is holy and the commandments is holy and the commandments are righteous and good. Why? Why would Paul say that about the law? Because God is good. And his goodness penetrates every aspect of the law. Therefore, legalism and antinomianism is not only a distortion of the gospel, but it's a distortion of the law as well. Why would Paul say that? Why would King David say this? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter. Here's David thinking of the law of God, saying it's sweeter than honey, dripping from the honeycomb. You know why? We know this already. David understood grace. David understood grace. He delighted in the law because he understood grace, and he understood that God wired the universe in such a way that he knows how we ought to live better than we do. I know it's a shock to some of you, but actually God knows better. John the Apostle, this is love, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So family, it's the last thing I want to to preach on. Give me a few more minutes. Antinomianism against the law. Legalism, apply the law. The antidote for both of those things are not, is, are not a little bit of the other. So in other words, if I'm a legalist, I gotta start saying, forget the moral standard of God. I gotta, I gotta fight against that. If I'm an antinomian and I, and I just throw out the law, then I just gotta start following the commands of God. You see, a little of each. That's not the answer. That's not the antidote. The antidote for legalism, antinomianism, is the gospel. It's the gospel. The gospel declares that the just judge of the universe has forgiven us. He has made us holy and spotless and righteous in his sight before the world because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We have a Father in heaven. We cry out, Abba, Father, who loves us. The gospel, the good news, being justified by faith alone motivates us to love God. And propels us to love and obey God and to love and to serve one another. The gospel frees us to pursue Jesus and grow more and more in love with God. The New Testament declares, in fact, Paul will do it in Galatians 5. He says this, that the the love is the fulfillment of the law. Look what it says, chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that's sin, but through love, what? Serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul writes in chapter 13 of Romans. Listen to this carefully. 13, verse 8 of Romans. Listen carefully. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the love who loves Excuse me, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love fulfills the law. Then he writes this, listen. For the commandments say, and he does the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love 
does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. But why would Paul use the law to teach about love? Why would Paul use the law to teach about love? Track with me. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. This is perfect. Perfect. He says this. This is the reason. Love, listen, love is what law commands and the commands are what love fulfills because love requires direction and principle of operation. Love is motivation but is not self-interpreting direction. Commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction. The notion, listen to this, the notion that love can operate apart from the law is a figment of the imagination. It is not only bad theology, it is poor psychology. It has to borrow from law to give eyes to love, end quote. Here's what you remember, and write this down, it's very important. Remember this, the divine indicatives give rise to divine imperatives, not the other way around. In other words, divine indicatives Indicatives, who you are in Christ, justified by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, is first before you hear the imperatives go and do. If you get it backwards, it's a mess. You're going and doing so that you can be. You don't want to do that. You are, therefore, go and do. Very different. Very, very, very different. The good news, the good news Once we get that straight, by the way, fam, once we get that straight, we get justification by faith alone in Christ alone, we get grace, we get law, and the right motives, we can live in joy, we can live in freedom, we can love God, love others, obey God without being put under the law. And the good news of the true gospel that we are justified by faith alone not only removes our guilt, not only removes our our sins by forgiving us, but transforms us, regenerates us, and empowers us to walk in love and obedience by the Spirit, all by God's grace. Grace enables us to live a life pleasing to the Lord, but at the end of the day, grace is the same thing that is sufficient when we fail. When we fail. We belong to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It cannot be, we cannot belong to God through obedience, through moral standards, because we will fail. We are obedient because of his grace and love. God is saying, you're my prized possession. You matter. You're significant. You are valued and loved. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are in covenant eternally with me all because of what I have done and who I am. And it's through grace. It's through love, not of your own works. That is why we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to preach the gospel, beat it into our heads, Luther said. The only thing that makes us acceptable to God is our trust in the work of Christ alone. Jesus, listen, Jesus satisfies God's demand. And we are saved not by our works, but his work. And on the cross, Jesus shed his blood. Jesus' blood was shed. He received the curse so that we can get blessed. He lived the perfect life, obeyed the law completely. We deserve our blood to be shed, but he takes our curse, sheds his blood so that we can have blessings. We're saved by grace. Not only are we brought into the covenant by grace, through faith, we're justified by faith. We stay in that covenant. Now, let me close with this last statement. It's very important. I can always keep saying that, but this is just very important. What that means is this. 
You and I do not have to fear God's moral standard, God's law, God's ways for us. We're not under law, but we're not over law. We can actually use the moral commands of Christ, which there are many. We can actually use it knowing that it won't save us. Our salvation is by grace alone through, through the work and perfect moral record of Jesus. We're free to love God with all our heart, walk with him faithfully, listen to his voice, follow him in obedience, knowing at the end of the day we'll fail and we come to him. And what do we do? Forgive us, Father, if we have sinned. And he forgives us and continues to pour out his grace and mercy on us. That's the truth of the gospel. That's getting law and gospel right. That's what's getting law and gospel right. We are justified by faith alone through Christ alone. And because we've been justified by faith alone through Christ alone, we now can, by the power of the Spirit, walk in love. And what does that look like? It's following the will and the ways of God. Not being under the law and not being over the law. That's the gospel. I want all of us, including myself, the band can come on up. I know we're running late. The band can come on up. Listen, I want all of us to grow in holiness. I want all of us to grow in our sanctification. I want all of us to look more like Jesus, me included. I, 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 want, to, I want to obey God more. I, I want to follow God's way more. But I don't want to put myself under the law that if, God, if I do that, God will love me and God will accept me. He already does. It's out of gratitude and love and the overpowering of, uh, the overwor- uh, and the overflowing of the Holy Spirit in my life that I'm going to walk in obedience. Don't get it mixed up. You fall into legalism. You fall into antinomianism. What you want is gospel. Does that make sense, everybody? Thank you for your, for your uh, time. We're going to jump into this a lot more. Let us stand together as, as we pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel will set us free. We'll have the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven, that the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness, imputed to us by faith alone, empowers by your spirit to walk in love, to love you more each and every day, to love others more each and every day, to serve you and to serve one another each and every day, not because we have to, but because we get to, not because we want acceptance and forgiveness and, 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 and feel like we are valued and worthwhile, but because we already are in the gospel, that Jesus has done it all for us. And Lord, help us, empower us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.